After our, our nine-month journey through the book of Proverbs, we're about to begin a new series today, and we're going to be looking at a variety of scriptures over the coming weeks as we, as we kind of tackle this thought, this idea of why not you? And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about what it looks like to actually stop talking yourself out of the dreams, desires, and calling that God has placed on your life. And we're going to be working through a variety of things that Scripture brings up, particularly related to calling. But here's the thing. Most people spend a lot of time, maybe even the majority of their time throughout the course of their life, talking themselves out of the very things that God has equipped them to do, which is very ironic. But I think sometimes we're often filled with self-doubt. I think we're often filled with, uh, you know, just all sorts of things where we think, all right, maybe somebody else could do this and not me. And so we're just going to ask the question, why not you? Why not you, right? And specifically today, we're going to be looking at portions of Acts chapter 9, and we're going to be answering the question, are you living with a strong sense of God's calling on your life? We're going to see how that's demonstrated, particularly in the life of the Apostle Paul, but I want to make a few applications from it. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 9, I'm going to start us off by reading the first nine verses, and then uh, throughout our time together, we're going to look at several other portions of Acts 9, and then also a portion of Acts chapter 2. Uh, But before we do, we'll start here, Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 1, and this is what it says. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word together this morning and to talk about this idea of the calling that you have placed on our lives. We know, Lord, that, that in many respects, that's the type of thing that, that sometimes we could push to the back of our mind when really it should be on the forefront of our mind. And so as we look at this portion of Scripture today from Acts 9 and some of the Scriptures that relate to it, and as we think about your calling on our lives, we pray that you'd give us an understanding of this concept, and we pray that we would grow in our walk with you as a result. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me say a few things, even before we dig into our text for today. And the first thing I want to say is this. Your life is not an accident. You are not living an accidental life, right? This is a very much on-purpose type of thing. You were born when you were born and where you were born on purpose. You look a particular way, you sound a particular way, and you function according to a divine design. And Scripture backs up each of those assertions. You have gifts, you have abilities, you have talents that have been supernaturally entrusted to you. 
There are open doors and there are opportunities right in front of you right now that you've been uniquely designed to walk through or seize or embrace. And everything, everything I just said, every single thing that I just stated there is 100% true, but it's also entirely possible that you may not believe me. I, I think it, it's also possible that you might believe me if I was saying those things about somebody else, but when those things get directed at you, and when I say these things in, in a, like a declarative way, like I just said that, I think at times it could be easy to just dismiss that and think, all right, that could be true of somebody else, but that's not true of me. But I think we're going to see as we spend time in God's Word together today and in the coming weeks that it is true of you. What if God told you that He has an artfully crafted purpose for your life, and He wants to use your life to make an impact with reverberations that, that, that stretch out into eternity? Would you believe that, that your life could have that kind of impact, that, you, that he has fashioned you to have a life that has eternal impact? Would you believe that that's a true statement? Or again, does that seem just like a daydream or just something fanciful that I'm just making up because it sounds good? You know, would you believe me uh, if, if I said that, that the God who created this universe and spoke creation into existence also cares to take notice of you, and he takes care to notice of your situation, and he takes care to notice of your, your strengths and all the things that, that kind of make you into the person that he has crafted you to be. And that among the billions of people that walk the face of this earth, that the Lord is paying special attention to you, and that he has a divinely orchestrated plan for your life. Would that seem too specific in the midst of a world of billions of people? I spent a lot of time reading the Bible, which I guess is probably good, right, since I stand in front of you and teach it from time to time. I spent a lot of time reading it, and I read it for a variety of reasons, but here's the thing. I believe that when, when I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading, I, I'm reading a collection of writings that is unlike anything that's ever been produced. There is nothing like it. I believe every single word of the Bible was divinely superintended and divinely inspired by a loving creator who communicates with humanity and desires to initiate a relationship with us. And just as he, just as he facilitated and oversaw the articulation of every single word that makes up the Bible, and he's that involved in the details, so too is he that involved in the details of every human life. The details do not escape him, right? He gave you life. He's watching you live it. And he wants to, to work through you to do something amazing with it. But if you don't want to believe what I'm saying, you won't. And I know that I can't make you believe what I just said. I'm 100% convinced in my spirit that everything I just said is completely accurate, but if you don't believe it, you won't believe it, and I'm not going to be able to make you believe it, although I'm going to try. And I don't know if I'm going to succeed, but here's the thing. You can easily ignore everything that I just said, and in fact, that's what the vast majority of the billions of people walking this planet are doing. They ignore everything I just said because many people don't even believe that there is a creator, and many people aren't, you know, even among those who are willing to acknowledge that he exists... They are not convinced that he has a very specific calling on their life. Again, they tend to think of that as being other people. 
people that they, they elevate in their mind as being special or people that they elevate in their mind as being you know, somebody that is just so far above them. And then you discover when you look at Scripture, who is it that the Lord typically ends up using? Those that aren't full of themselves. Those that express a, a degree of humility. Those that are willing to be submissive to His leading. So, do you fit in that category? You know, are you willing to be submissive to his leading? Or, you know, are, are you somebody that, that doesn't think that you're number one at everything? Because that's whom the Lord seems to use all throughout the Scriptures. And so I think, you know, as we're, as we're looking at this and as we're preparing our hearts to spend several weeks looking at this concept, I just, wanna, I just want you to be thinking about a variety of things. I'm going to ask a lot of questions as we go through this, but what about you? You know, what do you believe? What do you dream about? What do you desire? Do you have a strong sense of God's calling on your life? I hope that after we take a look, even at the scripture we're looking at today, that this helps develop that calling. Because there's a variety of things we're shown here in this portion of scripture. And one of them is this idea of mission. And the fact that the Lord loves to give people a mission, a mission to be on mission with him. Look at what it says again in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. Because here it talks about this idea of this mission that we've been given. And specifically here, the Apostle Paul is addressed, but there it says, it says, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and then notice this line, and you will be told what you are to do. You will be told what you are to do. So it's impossible to read the book of Acts without being struck by the transformation that took place in the Apostle Paul's life. Before he came to know Christ, before he even took on the name Paul, Scripture tells us that he was known as Saul. People referred to him as Saul. He actually had a terrible reputation. Saul hated Jesus. He hated Christians. He hated the church, and he wanted to do everything within his power to discourage people from following Christ. That was his reputation in the generation in which he lived. But that all changed. In an instant, when Jesus appeared to Saul and confronted his persecution. And several things stand out to me about that confrontation, as Jesus directly addresses Saul. First of all, when Saul heard the voice of Jesus, do you notice a few things that that happen when Saul hears this? He hears the voice of Jesus, but he doesn't know who was speaking to him. And I find that very ironic, because when you look at Saul's life, especially in, in light of what's taken place up to this point, Saul thought he was doing God's will. He thought he was someone who was doing God's will by imprisoning Christians and by approving of their execution, and that's what he was devoted to doing. And he believed that that's something that God was leading him to do. He thought he was doing God's will. But then when God actually speaks to Saul, Saul has to admit that that voice is unfamiliar. That is an unfamiliar voice to him. He's not familiar with the voice of God speaking to him. Up to this point in his life, Saul had, had spent his time thinking he was listening to the voice of God, but actually ignoring the voice of God. And now God was speaking to him in a way that he could not ignore. Second, I love when we look at this portion of Scripture, the, the fact that, that you have Jesus here taking the initiative to reach into Saul's life, even though Saul wasn't looking for him. Saul was not looking for Christ. Saul was looking for the people that followed Christ so that he could either imprison them or execute them. But he wasn't looking for Jesus. So Jesus takes the initiative to reach into Saul's life. And I love that because that mirrors our relationship with Christ as well. We were not looking for him. 
You know, when I think back to when I, when I met Christ, I wasn't looking for Christ. When I look back over the course of my life, I realize that the Lord was orchestrating circumstances and putting people in my life to introduce me to Him, but I wasn't looking for Him. And when you look at what Scripture tells us, it tells us nobody was looking for Him. We weren't looking for Him. He came looking for us. He came to seek us because we weren't seeking Him. This mirrors our relationship with Christ as well. We were ignoring Christ, but He came and He found us and He called us unto Himself And we see him doing that in dramatic fashion in Saul's life. But third, I love looking at at the mission that Saul was given here in this portion of Scripture. And it was here foreshadowing what Saul's life was going to look like from now on. But Jesus says to him, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So it's like this first step of faith. Rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. You came, I mean, what, what did he come to do? He came to imprison Christians, right? He came to, to find them, to seek them out and imprison them and, you know, continue this pattern of persecution that they were enduring. And it's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause your eyesight for a little while and then I'm going to tell you, rise, go into the city, and then you're going to be told what you are to do. You're going to be given your new mission because you thought you were here for a particular mission. I'm going to switch it up on you and I'm going to show you what your real mission happened to be. Things were about to change for Saul in a dramatic way. His mission was going to be laid out for him in very specific detail. We'll look at some of that in just a minute. But Saul, from that point on, was going to dedicate every ounce of his energy, every moment of his life, to fulfilling the new mission that he was being given. Now, why am I bringing this up at the start of a new series? Why am I addressing this? Why am I even asking the question, what is the mission you've been given? Well, I want us to be thinking about that. I just want to put this out there to us because, again, we always seem to think that somebody else is going to do the thing that we were specifically designed to do. So what about you? Do you have a clear sense of your mission? Or maybe I could even say it this way. Have you heard Jesus speak to you about this in a particular way? Now, maybe you weren't walking on a road and and heard an audible voice from heaven. I doubt, I probably doubt that you were telling the truth if you said you did. Because the Lord typically does not speak to people that way. You know how He typically speaks to us? He, well, first of all, through the Scriptures, you know, through the Word of God, the Lord speaks to us. And then He also, at times, will use circumstances. And then other times, He'll use people that are in our lives who know Him and love Him, who speak a word from Him. And so I wonder, if you're finally hearing His voice... Are you ready to move in the direction that he's leading you, or will it take something more dramatic to get you there? Because sometimes it does, and sometimes the Lord demonstrates his love to us by saying, we can make this dramatic if we need to, or we could do this the easy way, right? For Saul, it needed to be dramatic. It It needed to be something where he was jostled out of the life that he was living up to that point. And he was very forcibly awakened. For others, the Lord speaks with a still, small voice, and he convicts our spirit. And, we st- and the light kind of goes on in our head, and we're like, oh, wait a second. Now I see what I was missing. But what is the mission you've been given? This was going to be outlined for Saul, but we should be asking that about ourselves as well. What's the mission you've been given? If you're alive, you have one. The fact that you're here means you have one. Look at what it says. I'm going to jump ahead a tiny bit here. Still in Acts chapter 9, but I want to show you something that it says when we get to verses 15 and 16 of Acts chapter 9, because I want to just kind of throw out another question for us, and that's this. 
Who have you been called to serve? Who have you been called to serve? In Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, it says this, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, some of you know this pattern and some of you don't, but um, on Friday evenings, my wife and I have a tradition. And it's, it's like a tradition now that, that neither of us is eager to break. But on Friday evenings, Andrea and I, we go out to eat. It does not take any convincing whatsoever to convince me to go out to eat, especially with her, because I really like hanging out with her. And um, there are several local restaurants that we enjoy. And since our message is being recorded right now, I won't plug them all. But if you ask me privately, I'll tell you which ones we tend to go to. There's four that are on our regular rotation, and we kind of mix them up. And... Um, we do that so we don't get sick of eating the same thing, even though I tend to get the same thing almost every time we go someplace. It's just the different version that they have at the different restaurants. She's like, oh, would you look at this? You got chicken served a different way. It's like, <laughs> was it really different? So because we're such regular customers, because that's the thing. By the way, I don't know what you're saying to Susie, but I see you talking to Susie right next to you, and she just followed that statement up with something. So I'm just calling both of you guys out. <laughs> Pay attention up here. Eyes up here. But because we're such regular customers at these places, don't think I won't call you out. <laughs> the servers recognize us, and we recognize the servers, right? And so we've been trying to learn names, although I saw recently that that's a sign that you're getting old when you try and learn the name of your server. I was like, what? That just felt like politeness, you know? I just thought that was good manners. And it's like, no, it's a sign that you're aging, John. It's like, well, okay, fine. I'm going to age gracefully, and I'm going to learn the name of my servers, right? But we also know which servers offer the best service. We've realized that because we've been to these places enough times. And at one restaurant, we actually kind of hold our breath every time we go there because we like the atmosphere and we like the food. But there's one particular server who honestly is, is a lovely person. But she is very scatterbrained and inattentive. And, and we know, like, order however much you plan on, however much iced tea you plan on getting, order it immediately because no more iced tea is coming back to that cup. It's not coming back. So get it now. You know, I remember at one point, I kid you not, this is the honest truth. We got our appetizers at the end of the meal. We didn't say anything about it. Our food had come. The appetizers never came. At the very end of the meal, they were like, oh, we we're supposed to give you appetizers. Here you go. And we're like, well, thanks. And they're like, yeah, we goofed. So we're not charging you. Also good, right? So you should hope that they goof because sometimes they don't charge you for the apps then. But then there's another restaurant that we like to go to, and, and just a, a little, uh, let's see, nine days ago when we went there, we actually got one of our favorite servers. And, um, and we kind of realized that she's one of our favorites over time because she's attentive to every single detail. And we watch her manage so many tables at once, and yet she's always polite, notices uh, if you get even like a close to a third of your iced tea left, it's filled. You know, if you need extra napkins, whatever you need. She's always polite, always friendly. And, um, and so recently when we got there and we discovered that she was our server, I didn't even plan to say this. It just kind of came out. You know, sometimes your mouth will say something you're thinking and you don't realize you're about to say it. She's like, Hi, I'm going to be your server for today. And I went, oh, good. <laughs> I literally said, oh, good. And I, and I thought, uh, and then I had to like walk it back because it seemed way too enthusiastic. And I was like, oh, good. I'm so glad you'll be our server today. You're just, we just enjoy it. <laughs> that is a true story. I felt a little embarrassed when I did that. 
I hope I made her feel good because her service is fantastic, right? It's really, really good. I'll tell you where that was at. That's at Isaac Newton's. There, plug for Isaac Newton's, all right? But Saul, when you look at his life here, he was about to learn the concept of service in a brand new way. After encountering Jesus, he was going to understand or learn what service really meant. Now, the scripture tells us Saul, in that encounter, he was blinded. He was blinded in that encounter. And so his companions had to lead him away and actually lead him into the city of Damascus. That's what the scripture tells us. Now, I didn't read the verses that give us the rest of this backstory, so let me summarize it. But in Damascus, there was a man. He was a Christian man. His name was Ananias. And the Lord had spoken to Ananias in a vision. And in that vision, the Lord revealed to Ananias, he was trying to prepare him for something, but he specifically revealed that he was about to send Saul to Ananias. And uh, by the way, Saul had a reputation for persecuting Christians. So imagine if the Lord spoke to you in a vision and told you that the person on this earth that maybe you most feared or the person on this earth that you thought could cause you the most discomfort or trouble was not just coming to your city, but coming to your house. So what did Ananias do when he received this information from the Lord? In this vision, he actually protested it. Not aggressively, but it was like it was one of those moments where the Lord tells him this, and then Ananias feels like he needs to give the Lord information that he might have missed. It's like, you know that that's the guy that does the persecuting, right? Really, Ananias? That's amazing how I can know every hair that you have on your head, speak creation into existence, and sustain it by my powerful word, but I need you to tell me who Saul is. By the way, you know I created that guy too, right? It's like, but thank you. You're really helpful, Ananias, right? So Ananias was told, you know, he's coming to your house. Be ready. And he's going to need to be shown certain things. And the Lord commissioned Ananias to lay his hands on Saul when Saul came, and that through that experience, Saul's sight would be restored. So it's a fascinating portion of Scripture, but it was a process the Lord wanted Saul to go through to kind of shake him out of the life that he was living up to that point. And so when Ananias initially protested this to the Lord, he was told a little bit more about the Lord's plans for Saul. And Jesus reveals that Saul, he says, this is my chosen instrument. That's how he describes him. He is my chosen instrument. Now, again, if you were living on earth at that time, and anyone in that region asked you, who is the most unlikely person to be used of Jesus to spread the gospel? You would have answered, Saul. You would have said he's the most unlikely person to do this. And I'm saying this because maybe you think you're the most unlikely person in your generation, but I'm telling you, in his generation, he was the one anyone would have said is the most unlikely. And what did the Lord say? He is my chosen instrument. He's my chosen instrument. I'm going to use him. Nobody else thinks I will, but I'm telling you, I'm going to use him. And he also reveals that even though you know, Saul's going to be used to spread the gospel far and wide, and he certainly did that during the rest of his life, but he would also experience a great deal of suffering as he did so. It wasn't going to be a comfortable life. So if any of us think that the goal of life is our personal comfort, that's not really what Scripture teaches. Saul is told, you know, it's revealed to him ultimately that he's going to deal with a great deal of suffering as he fulfills this mission, but just the same, it's how his life is going to be used going forward. And so Ananias was obedient to the Lord's instructions. He meets up with Saul as Saul comes to him. He, Saul's sight is restored. And Saul even confirms his newfound faith in Jesus Christ by being baptized immediately afterwards. So we see a radical transformation take place in Saul's life. But from that point on, it wasn't a mystery to Saul whom he was called to serve. Saul was told to carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles. There's three groups he's told here. Carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles, 
carry the name of Jesus before kings, carry the name of Jesus before the children of Israel. Basically, what's just happened is it's like everybody, right? Everybody. Carry the name of Jesus where the name of Jesus needs to be shared. But these were the specific people that Saul, again, later called Paul, was commissioned to serve, and he had a clear understanding of this calling from this point on. So again, let's make it personal so it's not just about him. Who have you been called and equipped to serve? Right? Because when the Lord calls us, he doesn't just call us and ask us to operate in our own natural strength. If he calls you to serve somebody, he equips you to serve the people he called you to serve. God gave you your personality. He even allowed you to develop develop certain preferences. He's gifted you with natural talents. He's gifted you with supernatural abilities. He's also given you the opportunity to live right where you live. He's ordained for you to be born exactly when you were born. And when you look at what Scripture tells us in, in Psalm 139, verse 16, Scripture also assures us that we will not be dying one day early. So you were born when you were supposed to be born. You will not die one day early. So you're going to be here exactly as long as God wants you to be. And I suspect that the Lord's also given you a specific affinity for certain people or a burden to serve a particular group or a profession or a tribe or something like that. He's probably put some sort of an affinity in your mind for certain people. And so I'm curious if you'll use that affinity to serve them or if you will offer up excuses to God until that final day comes. Because we, we will be here exactly as long as he wants us to be, and we could spend that time offering up excuses to him and saying, certainly not me, Lord, or we could say, why not me? Why not me? The Lord's willing to use someone like Paul who was on the exact opposite end of what it looked like to actually believe and then he transformed his life. Why not you? Why not me? Is there something getting in the way of us listening to his calling? You ever ask yourself that? Is there something getting in the way of me listening to God's calling? Or what voices do you hear loudest in your head? It could be a dangerous question to ask, right? You're like, do you really want to know? Not really. But I'll tell you something that gets in the way. Sometimes there are voices we need to start filtering. You have to put a filter on certain voices, and I'll explain what I mean with a personal example that really hurt me for a long period of time until I understood that I needed to start filtering it. But I want to read a portion of Scripture for us from Acts chapter 2. So this is earlier in the book of Acts, verse 13. It's a portion of Scripture that I'm sure some of you are already familiar with, but this is something that took place on the day of Pentecost, and I'm just going to read one brief sentence. It says this in Acts 2.13, it says, But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. What's the context of that statement? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. So let me say this. The devil has a playbook that he loves to return to over and over and over again. And one of his favorite plays to use against you and me is mockery. And he loves to use mockery to dishearten and discourage God's people from doing what they're called to do. Now, sometimes, unfortunately, we do his job for him. And what I mean by that is this. We end up mocking and berating ourselves. You know, there, I, I think I have been more critical of myself than any human being I've ever met in the course of my life. And I've probably been more critical of myself than the devil even has. And that's a shame to admit, but it's 
probably true, and it might be true of you as well. And it's certainly something that I've had to ask the Lord to help me work through so that I don't keep doing that. But other times, I think we give a lot of power to the harshness of our critics. And we just give, we just give them so much power and so much sway in our minds and so much sway in our lives. And, you know, we, we have these voices, right, that we're hearing, people maybe that we, we actively interact with or, or maybe even our own voice in our own head that's trying to talk us out of doing what's, what God's called us to do. And yet there are these dreams and these desires and this clear sense of calling that the Lord gives us, but we find ourselves, instead of listening to the voice of God to act on those things, we end up listening to the voice of our critics when really we should be filtering those voices. There are people that will give us critical feedback from time to time that also love us. That's helpful. Receive that humbly. But there are others that are actively mocking you because of your faith in Christ. Filter that accordingly. Growing up, I had a relative that used to mock me incessantly. And when I say incessantly, I mean that word. Like, this was daily. This wasn't just an occasional thing. This was a daily thing that I went through for a period of time. And I'll keep his identity veiled so as not to incriminate him, right, since I'm being recorded right now. Uh, But I'll tell you what, if he ever comes across these words that I've just spoken, he will know that it's him, right? It's not going to be a mystery to him. He will know. He was several years older than me, which automatically meant, and just think about that, when when you're a young person, you know, you're 12 years old, you're 13 years old, and someone's several years older than you, they are your heroes, right? You look up to them, everything they say is something you take serious. Everything they say, everything they do, you, you want to be just like them. You know, you're, you're 13, but they're driving. You're, you know, you're watching them do all the things that you're like, wow, they're just an emerging adult. And I, they're just so cool. They're into cool music and cool clothes and all this. And you say, I, I want to be just like you. So he's several years older than me. I automatically think I just was prone to look up to him. Um, but when I started taking my faith in Christ seriously, When my walk with the Lord became a serious facet of my life, uh, what I was dedicating my life to, I probably shouldn't even say a facet because at that point I was just certain that this is, you know, I'm all in, right? This isn't just a partial thing for me. The Lord doesn't have a compartment in my life. He gets the whole thing. So when I took that seriously, uh, I remember just the mockery, just it, it was off the chart. And I remember it was just, just how painful it felt to be on the receiving end of that, because there are certain opinions that I can filter out super easily because I don't actually care what certain people think of me. Like, I don't know if that sounds bold to say that, but there are certain people like, I really don't even care. Like, they could say whatever they want. Doesn't even matter. But the criticism that gets to me is when I actually care about the source that it came from. And so this was one of those moments that that it was was like, wow, like, I mean, it was really bothering me. I felt terrible. Um, he would humiliate me in front of others anytime he had the opportunity to do so. And I was like, wow, this is getting bad. And that hurt. But I remember also, and I'm, I'm actually grateful when I look back at it, because it prepared me for a lot of things. I didn't know I was going to serve in the roles that I serve in now. And when you serve in a public role, guess what you get? You get a lot of feedback. Some of it's helpful. Some of it is not very helpful, right? And so you kind of have to be prepared somewhere along the line to start receiving that. And uh, it was preparatory. It was actually helpful because I remember I got to a point where I was like, well, here's the deal. I can keep listening to this mockery, or I could do what I know I'm called to do and stop caring about it. And I remember just having a day when I just had peace in my heart where all of a sudden I was like, you know what? 
all done. I don't care. You just move to the I don't care list. I don't care about anything you say that mocks my faith anymore. You can mock me. You can rip me apart. You can pick on me in front of others. You could humiliate me and use the advantage that you have because you know I look up to you. And you can mock me as much as you want, but guess what? Today is the last day I'm letting it bother me. I'm moving on from it emotionally. I'm moving on from it mentally. I got to tell you, it made a huge difference in my life. And you know what's ironic? When people realize that the influence that they have over you has just gone, then they start kind of stepping back and start realizing, what this isn't working. And you know what happened to the mockery when I stopped caring about it? Didn't 100% go away, but it lessened considerably. And I thought, this is interesting. I wish I came to this spot sooner. <laughs> I wish I came there sooner. Well, when you look at the early church, what kind of reception did they receive from people? Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 2, they were mocked. It's, again, it's one of the devil's favorite tools, mockery, because it will dissuade people from doing what they're called to do. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, you have the disciples in that moment filled with the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, and they were mocked by those who did not have a metric through which to understand what they were observing. This miracle that was taking place in front of everybody, they didn't understand what they were seeing, and so they mocked them. You have a diverse crowd of people, a group of people that are there from all different regions, they speak all different languages, and yet they're, under, they're able to understand the preaching of the disciples in their own language as the Holy Spirit fills the disciples and then enables them to supernaturally speak in languages that they did not naturally know. And so some in the crowd sees this taking place and they mock them. They, they basically say, I think they're drunk. They must be drunk. What are they doing? And sadly, without fully realizing what they were doing, this group of mockers was basically equating the power of the Holy Spirit with drunkenness. So, in effect, they weren't just mocking God's people. They were also mocking God. They were doing both at the same time. And I suspect that there are many believers in this world who have an understanding of God's mission for their lives and could even articulate an accurate description of who, they, who they've been specifically designed to serve. But they're being held back from doing so because they haven't yet started to filter out the mocking voices in their life. And I actually think that's one of the things that holds people back from doing what God's called them to do. And sometimes those voices might be from people who are jealous of them. Sometimes those voices might be voices in their head that are rooted in harsh words that they received back in their childhood that they've just kind of carried with them into adult life. Uh, they might be verbal arrows that come from people that they don't even know. Um, they might even just be things that they're making up in their head just because of their own insecurities. I think we've all experienced probably all four of those categories. But let me just ask, are you filtering out the voice of mockery and holding it up to the truth of the gospel so that it doesn't keep holding you back? That's something we'll have to do. Because if you put yourself out there, the voice of mockery will show up to say something about it. It's when you hide that it has no, it has no reason to say anything because you're already cowering. But if you put yourself out there, and you actually say yes to the mission the Lord gives you, and you begin serving the people He's called you to serve, you're going to have to come to a point where you start filtering out the voices of mockery that try to persuade you to stop. So let me say this as we finish up this morning. I just want to ask, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? 
You know, why not you? That's the big question we're, at, we're asking, right? Or, you know, just throwing out there. Why not you? So what's holding you back? Again, your life is not an accident. The Scripture shows us God does amazing things with lives that are submitted over to Him. His mission of redemption through Jesus Christ will advance. His passion to reach the lost will be satisfied. His desire to rescue the perishing will be met. He's going to use someone to do this. Why not you? Let me say this as we finish. I'm going to say this statement, and this is exactly where we're going to end today, but we'll pick back up next week. Stop talking yourself out of the dreams, desires, and calling that God has placed on your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for what your word reveals to us and the things that you show us, even when you use somebody like Saul and the example that that he gives to us of somebody who was just on the complete other end of the spectrum as far as what it looks like to follow you and what it looks like to actually submit his heart over to you. It seemed like he was the most unlikely candidate for anything like that. And yet you used his life. You called him unto yourself. You gave him a sense of mission. You gave him a sense of calling. You showed him whom he was called to serve. You empowered him to do so. You trained him to do so. You opened up doors for him to walk through, and he started walking through those. And sometimes those doors, where he just experienced so much joy as as he went through it, and other times he experienced so much suffering as he walked through those doors. And yet he was willing to do it because he could see beyond the moment. And Lord, sometimes we get stuck in a moment, sometimes we get stuck in this, this uh, spot where just a voice of mockery or a voice of our own insecurity tends to get in the way of us saying yes to your calling. Lord, I believe that you place dreams in our minds and, and desires in our hearts that you have shaped, and you seek to bring those dreams and desires in line with your will. Then you give us opportunities to act on them. But Lord, we know that so many times throughout the course of our lives, our own insecurities get in the way, or we just seem to go through life with this, this thought that this is a task for somebody else. And we always think that somebody else is more qualified, and we always think that somebody else has a deeper level of calling or a deeper aptitude or, or is just so much more competent than we are because they don't have this infirmity or this issue or this complicated part of their background or this dark part of their story or whatever it may be. And again, you give us just such a great example of what it looks like where where you you take a, a person breathing out murderous threats who's attacking innocent people and you make him one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament era. You make him an evangelist of the truth of your gospel and you take his hard heart and you give him a repentant and soft heart in its place, it's very exciting to be able to see that, Lord. And so if you're able to transform somebody like Saul and make him Paul the Apostle, Lord, we know that you could do that very same thing for us. So, Lord, I don't know what what kind of thing holds each and every one of us as individuals back. There's certainly something that that we have in our minds, certainly something in our hearts that that gives us pause from doing what you've called us to do. But whatever it is, Lord, we pray that we would hold it up to the light of the gospel and that we would be willing and open to answer your call on our lives and that it wouldn't take such a dramatic intervention like Saul experienced for us to get to the spot where we start saying yes. 
We pray that it would be much less dramatic on our part, but if it takes the drama, so be it. And so, Lord, we're just grateful again for what you've shown to us in your word and for the fact that you take lives like ours and you shape them in in very special ways. And so we're just thankful for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.